Hello and welcome back to WA Real. I'm your host, Bryn Edwards. WA Real brings you real and authentic stories from fascinating people here in Western Australia. Stories to inspire and guide you to take action to be all you can be. Today we are considering where we get our energy from in WA, our own energy consumption, and taking a look at the current status of renewable energy with my guest, Steve McGill. Born and raised in Albuquerque, New York, uh, New Mexico, uh, in the US, Steve started his career working in oil and gas projects in Texas until he moved over to WA, like many others, to work on LNG projects in 2011. Since living in WA, Steve began to take an interest in solar and wind energy and its storage. He then made the break from fossil fuels to focus on renewable energy. And since then, he's designed a solar lifestyle village with net zero energy, as in an annual solar production greater than an annual energy consumption, and led South Fremantle Senior High School to become the first carbon neutral high school in Australia. He's also had a crack at setting up a solar social network, and he's now working on electric vehicle research, a community wind, solar and biogas project in Margaret River, and is part of the plans for building an earthship in Australia. Steve, welcome to the show. Thanks, Brian. Great to be here. <laughs> so um, what was the appeal of coming to Western Australia for you to start with? Was it just with work? Or was there something a bit bigger? So I was working in Houston on offshore oil production platforms, so deep water uh, complex platforms, and working quite long hours, 60 to 70 hours a week. And um, from there, got the opportunity to come here. And I'd heard that the lifestyle was much better here. Um, and the projects were quite interesting, quite big. And so I thought it was a nice challenge and uh, potentially a better work-life balance, which it was. And it, and it has proved to be that. And it has proved to be that, yes. What are some of the biggest differences between living in Western Australia or living in New Mexico or, or Texas? Um, well, I think work-wise, there's definitely that work-life balance um, better here where, where you're not working all the time. Um, which has its upsides and its downsides. So in Western Australia, uh, you get the feeling everything is sometimes a bit too hard and uh, the too hard bucket might be full. Uh, whereas <laughs> in Texas, you get the feeling everything is possible and all it takes is hard work and uh, a bit more effort. So while there's benefits to the work-life balance trade-off, yeah. you also feel like in Texas, you can do anything. In Western Australia, maybe not. All right, yeah. cool. Do you see yourself staying here? I'm not quite sure. I think now that I'm a dual citizen, I, in a perfect world, would split time between the two countries. Yeah. 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 So what was the appeal of working in oil and gas and energy projects? Was it, was it something you were drawn to at the start or that you found interesting or was it just something you kind of fell into? Um, so... I guess my interest in energy probably stemmed from my mom who worked for the um, electricity and gas company in New Mexico for close to 30 years. Um, and that's where I got my exposure to the energy industry. And I did my engineering internship with a power company in Texas. And then graduating from university in, in Texas, it seemed uh, the natural thing to do, I guess, to go into yeah. oil. oil and gas was where the money were, was, where the jobs were and where the opportunity was. Mm. Yeah. But what is it you now find interesting about the whole thing? Because obviously that was then. Yep. You're still working in it and going further into it. What yep. is it you now find super interesting? 
I think the thing that interests me about energy is that it's at the core of everything we do today. Mm. And without it, the world literally stops. Um, and even though it's such a uh, requirement for progress and everything we do is dependent on it, so few people actually understand the industry, understand where their energy comes from, understand even what it means when you say energy. Um, most people naturally think of electricity only. Um, when really that's only probably about a third of the energy that's consumed globally. So I just find that being in the energy industry, you're at the core of everything and the price of energy has knock on effects throughout the world. And obviously with climate change and pollution emissions, um, the impacts of our energy use have effects, you know, for decades, generations to come from now. Mm. And that's certainly why I wanted to do today's podcast because it is really important. It's right at the start of the value chain of life. It's, yep. it's like there with food and water and water and energy. It's right there, bottom rung of hier uh, Maslow's hierarchy of needs. Yep. And I just don't think that we consider where it's coming from. We see a lot of stuff in the news, but we don't necessarily know where it's all coming from and, and, and are educated enough and considering how much energy we do consume. Yep. I just thought it'd be fun to do this podcast. So when you said um, we consider energy to be electricity, but that's only a third, what are the other two thirds? Um, so the other two thirds are oil and gas mainly. So oil used predominantly for transportation. So <clears throat> gasoline and diesel in cars for road transport. Uh, marine fuel for most shipping and aviation um, for planes, and then gas used in industrial processing, industrial heat applications, and also residential and commercial uses as well. Right. Yep. So it's not just us plugging in our iPhones. No, actually, you know, so an iPhone uses maybe five watts of power to charge. So to give you a uh, relative number your fridge uses 300 watts a plug-in electric heater would be 2000 watts an air conditioner between one and three thousand for home air conditioner so you could easily run if all we needed was to run iphones it could be quite easy to to yes. power everything with a small solar panel but there are a lot of iphones out there now yeah <laughs> yeah so if we before we start funneling this down into Western Australia and looking at renewables, can you just give us a, a, a like a, a global view? What are sort of the high level bullet points we should know in terms of what is the global energy consumption? Where does that supply come from? Um, both in terms of um, like oil, gas, nuclear, et cetera, et cetera, yep. but also geographically as well, where that sort of comes from. So the main vast majority of fuel um, of energy comes from coal, oil, and gas still to this day. Um, coal and oil are sort of sitting right at about equal parts at the moment. I'm not sure their exact uh, percents, but um, to give you a feel, we're consuming just under 100 million barrels of oil a day. So one barrel of oil is 42 gallons, 160 liters so 100 million of those per day throughout the world. Um, and that's basically the, the most we've ever consumed. We've never actually passed that 100 million mark. Uh, and we're due to pass that in 2018. Uh, clearly, the you know as you've 
been aware, I guess the majority of oil comes from the Middle East, um, but there's oil producing regions throughout the world. Um, oil is produced in Australia. It's produced in the United States, in the UK. Um, but with oil, you've got a, a um, limited resource, which is getting depleted on a daily basis. And, you know, as is quite uh, well known throughout the industry, the age of easy oil is over. It's no longer a matter of drilling a shallow well. You've got to go deeper. You've got to go unconventional. You've got to um, manipulate the rock formations to get the oil out now, which incurs more cost, which is why oil is getting more expensive. Right. Yeah. yeah. I guess one of the... Um... In one of the questions I have is, you know, I, I looked at it today. Barrel price is what sixty two. Yep, sixty two um, US dollars. dollars yep. US dollars, and and yet, you go back three or four years ago, it was one hundred hundred twenty dollars yep. a barrel. Yeah, it's way more expensive at the pump at the moment than it was back then. You know, even cheap Mondays, it's hundred hundred twenty five cents a, a liter. Yep, you, you go three four years ago and it was getting down to 85 90 cents yep how, so those how does that happen? well those benchmark prices are set predominantly in the u.s so the west texas intermediate is the u.s price and brent crude price is the um, uk price um so what we pay in australia is different from that so while australia does produce some crude oil still uh, the vast majority um, is exported to the to malaysia to singapore uh, for refining and 91% of oil in Australia is imported either as um, crude oil to be refined in the three or four remaining refineries in the whole country or imported refined product already gasoline or diesel. Um, so with that import dependency, you're going to pay a higher price. And then between the um, price for the raw crude, you've got what they call the crack spread. So that's the cost incurred in refining that crude oil down to uh, gasoline or diesel. Then you've got a margin on that product. You've got the transportation cost to get it to market. You've got a fuel tax, which is about 40 cents a liter. And then you've got the retailer's margin on top of that. So basically as that oil moves from somewhere in the Middle East or Malaysia or wherever it yeah. originated and gets to the pump in Australia, you've got you know several steps to, to get it there, which add cost in every single step. Yeah. So what, what is – obviously, there's, there's a shit ton of um, oil over in the Middle East. Yep. How much oil do we actually have here in Australia? Um, it's a good question. So the short answer is I'm not exactly sure. Mm. Um, not much left, not much easy oil. Yeah. Um, so the reservoirs in Australia are predominantly gas. The liquids that are produced are more condensates mm. um, or sour crude, which is exported. Um, the refineries that are set up here were set up 50 years ago to refine sweet crude, so low sulfur. Um, and basically that, that type of crude doesn't exist in Australia anymore. Right. And it's easier and cheaper to bring it in. So the end result of that is, like I said, 91% of what's burned in your cars um, is coming from another country. Yeah. And the other interesting data point on that import dependency is that the stockpiles held within the country are only enough to get the co the country through about 34 days right. of demand. So if there was so we have a, a stockpile of about 30 odd days worth of yep, or and until the yep. whole country runs out. So right. obviously, 
in those 30 days, as the supplies get shorter, the demand becomes a bit more intense. People trying to stockpile personally. Mm. Um, so it would, it would lead. So it's to, not one central. No. So that's everything that's sitting at the petrol stations. That's in the, uh, import terminals. That's in right. the, um, it's not one big pool of. No, so that's dispersed throughout the country. That's basically yeah. what is in the country physically, maximum. So while we continue to use petrol, diesel cars, yep. at least on that front, um, we will always be dependent on oil coming into the country. Yeah. 90% of it, 91%. 91% of it, it. yeah. So what's interesting about Australia is as a, as a whole energy perspective, it's a net exporting nation. So we export about... Um, 7,700 petajoules, which is a bit of a difficult number to fathom. 7,700 petajoules of coal per year yeah. is exported. Uh, as a country, we consume about 5,400 petajoules. So we export more coal, almost yeah. 50% more than we actually consume domestically in all energy. So that's electricity, oil, um, gas, everything. Mm. Um, we're also obviously, as you and I both know, um, increasing our supply of uh, LNG for export. Liquid natural gas. Liquefied natural gas. So that's taking a, a gas, um, freezing it, which shrinks at 160 times, and then, um, or 600 times, I believe. I think it's 600. 600 times minus 160 Celsius, and um, shipped abroad as a liquid. And that mainly goes to uh, Japan, Korea, China, and Asian countries. And that's where some of our, that's where certainly in WA, where our Gorgon, Wheatstone, Ithacus. Yes, uh, um, Gorgon and Wheatstone are the two big Chevron projects. Prelude, which is the big shell project, is world first floating LNG. A couple of years behind, should be turning on any day now. Um, and then ICTHIS, which is the um, IMPEX in Total project mm. running out of Darwin. Um, of course, on the East Coast, we've got APLNG, QCLNG, um, and a couple other projects, uh, which are a whole different ballgame. So that's all unconventional um, to LNG. So mm. where a massive project with three trains like um, Gorgon has 17 wells, conventional wells offshore, uh, no well stimulation required. Something like um, the ones in Curtis Island in, in Brisbane, those all have several thousand small wells feeding it. Yeah. And those are all coal seam gas projects, which require um, a lot more well stimulation. So unconventional fracking, um, as well as continued drilling throughout the project. So to feed in as the reserves deplete. Mm. Just staying at that global level. Yep. A couple of years ago, we had this um, sudden oversupply from the Middle East, where they were. It seemed like they were oversupplying and then bringing the price of oil. Yep. Down. Is that still occurring? Do we now understand why they did that, etc.? Because I certainly remember reading about it in the news. Yeah. So that main. Um, so the oil markets, you know, are notoriously tight. Um, a, a shift of two to five percent can throw the whole market off, and that big swing came largely from the U.S. Uh, increasing their domestic production. So the Middle East had kept their um, taps open, uh, hadn't reduced supply, and the U.S. came on board with a lot of their tight oil. 
So that's unconventional oil. Similar so un- to- just unconventional meaning. So a conventional reservoir basically is, you can think of it as a sponge. You stick a straw into it and, and suck it out. Um, nothing is required to actually get the hydrocarbons to flow. Whereas a unconventional well requires some type of well stimulation. So that's um, most often done with hydraulic fracturing, which involves um, pumping a high pressure water and um, uh, what is it? Uh, particle particulate uh, substance into the ground, which breaks up the um, shale formation and releases the hydrocarbons to flow out. Mm. Uh, so that usually involves at least two wells. Uh, so you've got your frack well and your production well, um, and that uh, you know changes the geology of the formation mm. um, to get the, the oil and the gas out. So the U.S. pioneered that um, technology initially um, looking to free uh, shale gas, and then once they were able to do that with, with the gas, they moved quickly into the liquids as well, and that's where the additional supply came out of. Uh, which threw the market out of whack and dropped it from $140 barrel down to 40 Right. Within two years. Yes. Yeah. And then a lot of people lost jobs and all sorts. Well, and what's interesting, as we mentioned earlier about the knock-on effects, so everything, you know, from as uh, immediate as LNG. So LNG is priced based on the price of oil. So when oil was at $140, uh, they've basically got a factor they apply it to that. It's usually about 15%. Um, so at $140 a barrel, they were paying close to $20 a gigajoule per unit per gigajoule of gas. Um, when it dropped down to 40, they're paying more like $6. Hmm. Um, so while oil price was high, the Asian buyers were fighting to break that um, oil price linkage. And now that it's lower, lower than before, lower than they were expecting, they're quite happy with it to yes. be linked to it. So that's just one immediate example. Obviously, the price of oil then factors into how much it costs to transport your food and um, basically do anything. Yeah. Yeah. It's interesting. Um, You know, you talk about how we've got to this $100 billion barrel a day consumption. $100 million, yeah. Yeah. Um, How long can we supply that demand before the demand has to have a look at itself, do you reckon? So it's, I mean, I guess what you're getting at is that Initially, that concept of limits was was pioneered by a guy, M. King Hubbard. So he had this whole peak oil um, Hubbard curve, which basically said that at some point, um, the supplies will start running out, the resources will be depleted, and the cost to go get additional resources will mm. be too high, um, and oil will eventually then start um, declining. So it was always- yes, a will run out of easy oil. So we've done that. And if you actually look at the conventional oil curves, it actually did peak a few years ago and has been replaced with unconventionals filling the gap and continuing the upward trend. Um, but where the you know energy analysts see it going now is basically a demand uh, limit where the cost for that oil starts getting so high um, and the alternatives start becoming a reality that people essentially stop consuming oil because they don't need it anymore. Mm. So going to alternatives will just become a necessity. Uh, a necessity or a better option. Yeah. yeah. So if you look at, um, I guess what I'm getting at here is electric vehicles, um, being that oil is used, about 50% of the oil that's produced is used for road transportation. 
Yeah. Um, so the remainder goes into aviation and marine transport, petrochemicals, um, a bit of electricity generation, industrial processing, and sort of other uh, mm. uses. But about half is used for road transport. Right. Um, so the internal combustion engine, which is what consumes all that oil, has been the technology leader for over 100 years now. Um, and there's been no real competitor that could stack up to it. And yeah. that's what we're seeing changing now. So you see mainly driven by Tesla out of the U.S. You see a car that has superior technology. It's faster, it has better acceleration, safer, and cheaper operational costs. So you've got you know significantly less moving parts, um, significantly less things you need to maintain and replace. Uh, so actually operating the vehicle is much cheaper. And then your supply side of what fuel is powering it, so whether it's the gasoline or diesel or the electricity, then is the final sort of factor in, in that operational cost. Um, and depending on your cost of electricity and your cost of oil, uh, that could swing either direction. Um, but as oil gets more expensive and electricity can be getting more cheaper uh, via low-cost renewables, which have a zero marginal cost, which we can get into later. Yeah. Um, running an electric vehicle is much cheaper and it has um, superior technology now. So there are a few things that are lacking, basically range, how far you can drive it before you have to refuel it. Um, and the location of these refueling or charging stations yeah. um, are sort of the last two items that need to come into play before essentially the electric vehicle is better than the internal combustion vehicle. Right. And when that happens, which some analysts say is happening in 2018, some say it's already happened, some say 2025, oil companies say 2030, 2040. When that happens, <laughs> well, so, you know, and there's a lot of things to think about, I guess, why they would say that a, that the oil based transport is going to tail off rather than fall off. Yes. Um, and that mainly comes down to the nature of the business, which requires continued investment and long-term investment because it's not easy and it's not cheap to go and get oil out of the middle of the ocean. Mm. So to fund those projects, they have to know that there'll be the demand for the product yeah. coming from it. And if they don't it. know that demand's there, then it's difficult to fund it and difficult to make that investment decision. Yeah. And the nature of a resource that gets depleted is that if you don't refill your tank, it starts running out and you either have to sell that for a higher price, which makes the alternative more attractive, or you yourself have to switch to what the alternative yeah. is. So that's I could the, see it speedily demise almost. That's the decision they're facing right now. Yeah. Yes. Is whether to get on board with the alternatives or try and extract the remaining value out mm. of their assets. And that's gonna that's gotta be a challenge because you've got an industry that's been well established, you know, you what was it? Standard oil that got split up into several seven sisters, seven yeah. sisters, yeah. yeah. And you, and then obviously what happened in Saudi Arabia, etc. And everybody's, you know, been making a nice bit of money out of that model. Yep. And so that model's now coming to an end. Hmm. It's going to take a big change of mindset for some people. Yeah. Well, and I mean, the fact has some been that won't, won't enjoy. <laughs> the fact has been that oil. Powered vehicles have been by far the, the fastest and the easiest form of transportation for 100 years. They've mm. been the superior option. Nothing could even come close to comparing. 
And now that something is not only comparing, but better than, so the Tesla Model X, I believe, or the Model S, um, scored so high on the safety test in the US that they had to rejig the grading criteria to not give them a better than 100% score. Yeah. So now that there's something better, you know, it's basically, do they fight this? Do they try and slow it down? Or do they get on board and, and join the change that's happening? Yeah. Um, and a lot of people, you know, uh, say that oil companies are trying to hold it back. And really, I'm not really sure if that's true. They've tried twice before to get on board in the 80s and then in the 2000s when BP had their whole Beyond Petroleum ad campaign and Shell mm -hmm. was investing in offshore wind and wind in the U.S. and solar and BP was making solar panels. Um, but they just got in too early and they got burned. They weren't hitting their quarterly profit targets. It wasn't actually a better technology then. Storage was a far off reality mm. or not even a reality at all. And investors were angry. There wasn't any return on investment. They got burned twice and now they're a bit cautious to jump back in on that third go. Um, but what's different this time is that the technology is cheaper and better and storage is possible now. So mm -hmm. It's a. It's only a matter of time, right? And the question is, how much time? Yeah. Yeah. If we look just um, outside of oil, you talked about coal as well. What does the future of coal look like as well? Because that seems to be um, one of the major things that we generate our domestic electricity. Yeah. So here in WA, it's still close to fifty percent, um, and it's I think even higher. Fifty percent coal. Fifty percent coal, forty percent gas, and the remainder from renewables. Mm. Uh, so there's no that's new a very small little slither of renewables. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Um, it may be up to 15% now. So that renewables number is increasing daily and the um, coal number is decreasing. Um, so there's two kinds of coal that's produced. There's thermal coal, which is used in power stations. And then there's metallurgical coal, which is used in steel fabrication. So I think metallurgical will be continued to use in steel. There's not really an, another alternative there. Um, thermal coal and power stations really don't have a bright future. Um, and that's due to a number of things. One is the age of most of the coal-fired power stations is reaching or past its design life. So keeping them going is expensive. Mm. Uh, the other is the carbon. here in Western Australia. All of Australia. Yeah. Um, and really throughout the world. So there haven't been a whole lot of new coal facilities built in the last decade. Mm. Um, and they're sort of built for a 25 to 30 year lifespan. Um, a lot of the stations here in, in WA are exceeding 40, 50 years old. So right. you can invest to keep them going. But as the state government found out here, it doesn't always work. Um, How do you mean? So the Barnett government in, invested several hundred million, I believe, um, into some the Muja A&B facility in Collie. And it basically didn't work. They had a failure and those facilities are, are now either turned off or about to be decommissioned. So uh, it was basically wasted money. Um, so the state government owns the electricity um, generator, retailer and network here in WA. Um, and then, of course, you've got other issues with coal production. So it's not an easy job. Uh, you've got industrial action almost constantly. There's a massive case in New South it's Wales. Still people down in pits digging. Well, not necessarily. So most of it's mechanized now. Yeah. Um, but it's still a dirty job. It's you're still covered in dust, and um, 
it's still a very unionized workforce that isn't necessarily happy with their work conditions. So there's a massive case going on in New South Wales at the moment. Uh, there was one in Collie here recently that just finished. Mm. Um, and it's a, it's a matter of time really to where those jobs basically won't exist and that industry won't be economic, economical to continue on. Mm. Um, like we saw in the North of England. Yeah, I did. Yeah. yeah so the, the UK had their, 90s. the UK had their first day of non coal use in the whole country in like over a hundred years last year. Mm. So, um, yeah, it's moving away from that. And when you get down to the nature of how a coal generating station uh, behaves, how they produce electricity, it doesn't mesh well with renewables. So coal-fired plants like to be heated up to a certain temperature and run constant that for days at a time. Yeah. So that's this baseload idea. Um, and with gas coming in to fill the peaks, that's like the old mentality of how power is generated when you tack in variable wind and solar that could turn off and on at any minute, it yeah. doesn't have any storage. Um, you either need more gas to back that up, pushing down the coal, or you've got to ramp up and down your coal facility, which they don't like to do. And they break it's not, down. It's not really quick moving, is it? It's not. No. no. So it's running off a boiler and mm. yeah, steam. So are we moving more towards gas? We are, but the, the other challenge with the gas is of course, when you make these massive investments like Chevron and Shell and Exxon and Impex and Total and basically all the majors have made in uh, these facilities in WA, you expect to get a, a good return out of it and you can sell the gas for more money abroad than you can here. Um, so while there is a domestic gas requirement for WA, the domestic gas prices have slowly ticked up to match that export parity. So that's basically the equivalent cost of LNG minus the company's cost to liquefy and ship it. Right. Um, which has pushed the cost of generation up, which makes gas power generation more expensive here than uh, maybe it would be otherwise. Um, so while that is, it doesn't sit well, does it? <laughs> well, so I'd rather be in that situation here than the situation they're in on the East Coast, which is basically they've overcommitted their gas reserves and they don't actually have enough gas reserves to continue filling the um, LNG trains for the life of the asset. So basically what they're running is- You say overcommitted as in committed to export sales? So they've committed more gas to export sales than they have gas uh, rights to access in the ground. So they were planning on continued exploration into areas that have currently put a moratorium on coal seam gas production. So they don't actually have enough access to gas in the ground to fill the contracts they've already signed. Right. Yep. Which means the domestic supply is going to be further down the queue. That's right. Which is why the East Coast has put in some domestic gas reservation policies and, and sort of, um, hmm. yeah, actions to try and alleviate those concerns. Um, but it's just the nature of a, of a finite resource. You have to continue going after and getting it. And if you hmm. don't, have a guaranteed source of revenue or you can't afford to it or afford to do it. Or if you're like on the East coast and you actually can't get to it because the state governments have um, Stop. stopped it, then you've signed a contract to deliver something you can't actually do. Mm. Um, and the way most of those contracts work are basically if they don't provide the gas, they have to pay for the alternative supply. So they end okay. up buying gas on the 
global market and filling the contracts that way. Right. Yeah. So while we are paying more and will do more for our gas here in Western Australia because of these bigger projects, at least that has then secured our gas future and gas supply for how many years? About five until future investment is required. Five years? Yeah. So that... Um, Despite they, the fact things like um, Gorgon and Wheatstone, are, they're, they're designed for 30, 50 years? Yeah. So there's enough supply for that, um, but they have to continue investing and in, in drilling more wells. Right. Um, and the way the domestic gas policy works in WA is a theoretical limit or amount of 15%, which is actually a negotiated amount and not actually equivalent to 15%. So every project pays or is set up to deliver a domestic gas um, obligation uh, specific to that project. Right. And the AEMO, which is the energy market operator, they publish a gas statement of opportunities report for WA. And you can go into that report and read that, after about 2022, 2023, more investment is going to be required for domestic gas in WA to continue meeting demand here. Right. And where, where will we see that come from? Oh, there's plenty of supply offshore, mm. um, but what it'll mean is more investment and you know more costs, really, so that that cost will only continue going up. We won't ever return to the prices we had five or 10 years ago. Right. Yep. So while those... Fossil fuel costs continue to get more expensive as the reserves get more expensive to produce. Um, the opposite's happening with renewable energy. Uh, so that's all on a, mm. on a resource cost curve. So as the resources are produced, um, there's less and less. They get more and more expensive. Renewable energy is a technology, and they're on a technology cost curve. So as more and more solar panels are made, more and more batteries are made, mm. they're on what they call learning curves. So they get better at it, they get more efficient, they get set up for scale, and they're able to produce it cheaper and cheaper and cheaper. And that line of parity, as they say, um, so that's when renewables are cheaper than the conventional fuels has already been passed. So there was right. lots of debate and papers written for years about when renewables would hit grid parity, and it sort of came and went without anyone even noticing because those costs are coming down so fast. So fast. Yep. So, so right now, the cheapest form of new generation is wind and solar. Right. Super. And just before we get into that, the the infrastructure that we have here in Western Australia, you said the government owns it. So that's yep. the generation and the network, et cetera. Yep. And um, what's the state of that currently? Uh, so the generation assets are owned by Synergy, um, and that's predominantly coal-fired. They do have gas power generation as well. Uh, but most of their coal facilities are reaching the end of their life. Mm. Um, and they all consume coal, which is owned by an Indian company, Griffin Coal, which is more or less bankrupt or reaching that point, um, whose only real customer are these synergy-owned coal stations. Uh, so those are coming to their end of their and life. And they're coming to their end of their life. The Griffin's. Griffin's coming to the end of their life. life. They've got a massive bill they're facing, which is the mine. Griffin, yeah. which is the mine uh, cleanup and rehabilitation, oh, which is yeah. a whole another bucket of worms you start getting into, which is essentially for all of these fossil fuel projects, they go and create a big mess and they're required to clean that mess up when they're done. Yeah. Um, but the you know strategy, for lack of a better word, 
um, has been to flog the asset to a smaller company, such as Griffin Coal, that when they go out of business, they don't have the money for it and the taxpayer gets left cleaning up the mess. Um, so that's happening in the generation side right now. Uh, Synergy as a business is losing $500 million a year, which is backed up by the state government. That's done through a subsidy. So basically the price you and I pay, which is amongst the highest in the world for electricity, is actually not reflective of the true cost to generate that power. Uh, so the state government picks up between 10 and 20% of that cost um, to the tune of $500 million a year. So it's even more expensive. It should be on the, so we pay right now 27 cents per kilowatt hour and it should be closer to 35. Right. If it was cost reflective. Right. Yeah. And then the other business, uh, Western Power, so they own all the poles and wires and substations, the network. Um, they're actually profitable. Um, and so they make their money by, um, a daily connection charge and by a tariff that's part of that 27 cent fee. So about half of that goes to Western power. Um, and they more or less successful business, I suppose they're profitable. Um, and they, you know, keep the lights on, I guess. Um, the question was several years ago, whether or not the networks would be required. If everyone could put solar panels on their roof and batteries in the garage, why do you need a network? Um, I'm of the view that the network's actually a quite useful asset. Um, and since it's already here, we should use it. Um, which is the same with the coal-fired and gas-fired power stations that are already there. So we should use those to, to enable that transition. It would be much yeah. more difficult if those were just to turn off tomorrow. Yeah. So we don't want that to happen. You never see a nasty spike in, in having to buy. This Everyone would have to run out and go and buy, you know, 15 grand worth of panels and batteries. And, and it wouldn't be 15 grand then if everyone was buying it because... It, well, it would it'd be a bit more expensive for a while and then it would probably actually be less. Yes. Yeah. So because Australia has such a high uptake, in, in fact, the highest uptake of sol rooftop solar in the world. Yeah. Um, so on the order of 25% of homes and 5% of businesses. Mm. Um, because of that, um, the price we pay for solar panels here is is some of the cheapest in the world as well. So on the order of three to four times cheaper than in the US mm. for the same piece of kit. Cool. So with solar power, um, just break it down for somebody who doesn't understand it. We have, you've, you've mentioned panels on the roof, you talked about batteries in the garage. Yeah. So basically with solar, um, it's an instantaneous production. So if there's a light shining on your panel, on your roof or mounted to the ground, it produces power um, at that instant. If a cloud passes over or you throw a blanket over it or it gets to nighttime, you produce nothing. So it's only when there's light on it, not heat, but light. Um, so there's also rooftop solar hot water, which is also very common in Australia, which works off thermal energy, so heat. Yeah. Um, but when we're talking solar today, we're talking electricity. Um, that works off light. It produces current, so power, um, when there's light on it, that's produced in direct current, uh, which then runs through an um, inverter, which takes that direct current and uh, inverts it into alternating current, which is what um, all of our appliances run off. Um, and then that runs into the house. If you don't have a battery, then it immediately feeds whatever your house is consuming. 
if you're producing more than what your house is consuming, the excess then spills over and goes back into the grid and goes to the next closest demand. So it could be your neighbor, it could be the business down the street, it's whatever is closest yeah. that needs power. If you have a battery, that excess would then go into your battery. Once that's full, then it spills over. Right. Well. Yeah. So by having a battery, then you can have that smoother supply. So you can store up to like you know, three to five days worth of energy supply for yourself. Yeah, so it really depends on your daily usage and the size of your battery. Um, but yeah, what the battery enables, batteries are quite um, useful for a number of reasons, but probably the biggest is that it enables a smooth um, network interface. So right now, networks aren't exactly big fans of solar systems because the biggest solar system in Western Australia is the aggregated rooftop solar of all the homes and businesses in Perth, right? which is basically in a 200K straight vertical. Um, and as you know, we're Between sitting- 200 200K straight vertical. Well, so from the very top of Perth, let's call uh, it- Right, yes. Two Rocks or Yanchep down to say Mandra, the Perth metropolitan area is about 200Ks. Yeah. And east-west it goes, maybe 30 Ks yeah. before you hit the ridge. Um, and obviously we're sitting on the Indian ocean. So we get fronts that come off the Indian and if they pass Perth and cloud the entire Metro area, it's like pulling the network connection out of the biggest power facility in the whole state and everything turns off. All of the solar systems immediately shut down all of that demand that's happening in the house now needs to pull its power from the grid yeah. and the grid needs to be able to react to that spike. So it's not easy. Mm. If you had a battery, that battery would basically feed in when the panels turn off mm -hmm. and the network would have time, whether it's five minutes, 30 minutes, an hour to react to that drop in power and turn on a gas powered facility. If they need more than fire up another coal turbine. Right. right. Yeah. Coal generator. Cool. So how you talked about that being the bit, the, that 200 K array almost, yep. um, how much sort of, uh, demand or how much input into the network does that constitute now? So what is our uptake of so solar the, on a domestic basis? Yeah. So the domestic base is right around 25%. I haven't checked these numbers in a while, but you know, 2016, 2017 were both record years for solar in Perth. Mm. Um, and it's somewhere on the order of 700 megawatts of combined power. Whereas the next biggest coal plant, I think is around 600. Um, and there's maybe two, two and a half thousand, um, megawatts of demand in the WA network. Mm. Um, so it's a significant portion and, Again, as I mentioned with solar, it's instantaneous. So it makes the most sense to have solar on a, on a facility or on a roof that's consuming that power during the day when it's sunny. So while homes got into solar first due to the government incentives and feed-in yeah. programs, um, which rewarded you for excess that went into the grid during the day when you were at work, now you actually get less money for what you send back in than you do then you pay to import. Uh, so what makes the most sense the way it's set up right now is for businesses to be putting on solar because they've got bigger rooftops, unsubsidized, higher cost of electricity and power demand during the day at the same time their solar is producing. Yeah. 
And that's what's really taking off right now. Any business with a large roof, so a warehouse that has um, refrigerated storage is basically perfect. Um, any uh, grocery store, supermarket, um, pretty much any business that has electricity demand, which is basically every business, um, at this point should be either already have solar or should be considering it um, because those costs of, of solar have come down so much and the price of grid power has gone up so much, the payback period is around two to three years. Mm. Um, and the life two to three years. Two to three years or less. Um, and the life of the system is 20. 20 odd years. Yeah. And, um, we now, and as you said, we now have the uh, products in terms of the, the panels and the batteries yep. to, to, to supply that even on an industrial scale. Yep. And, and, and in terms of the providers um, to set that up for you, we've got, is that in a good space as well? Um, well, so, I mean, that industry has been plagued by, I would call them snake oil salesmen. So people sort of smell the government incentives and they see the the dollars that are floating around and, and get into it. So early on, there was quite a lot of cowboys that got into the game. Um, and it's been an interesting market to follow because there's so many small players that are active in it um, who maybe aren't the most... Um, I don't know what the word to use there, but their business practices might not necessarily be the best. Mm. Um, and so that definitely hurt the industry. A lot of people got burned. A lot of people thought rooftop solar was dodgy because of that. And the other um, thing that's, I guess, happened is that a lot of the big players, so Synergy and the other electricity um, generators have seen their demand drop off seeing the financials relating to solar and, and they're basically, you know, the best option out there. And they've now got into to rooftop solar as well. Um, so you now have the option to buy your solar system from big established players that you right. trust. Saying that, the energy industry is one of the least trusted industries in the world. I think it's second only to oh, tobacco companies or something. It's quite bad. Reputation is bad. Nobody particularly likes their electricity company and the, the oil companies certainly have a lot of uh, brand reputation to worry about. Um, and because of that, there's a, there's a big attitude of not wanting to buy from the, the conventional guys because they're the ones people are trying to stick it to because they've been sticking it to them. Yes. Or at least that's the that's, that's the, how they feel. That's how they feel. Yes. Whether or not that's true. So when you're paying 120 cents to fill up your tank. <laughs> that's right. That's right. Yeah. Indeed. So do you see the uh, for the future of the state almost having the big array? So if we were to move and transition to a more renewable state, yep. Um, do you see that being a localized localized community? Um, array as you said like almost everyone with um panels on the roof yep or do you actually see because we're not short of sun and space um like the government taking over I don't know, a couple of thousand hectares out in the middle of nowhere yep the desert and then sticking a huge array out there that then feeds in i think it'll be a, a mix. Bit of yeah it's gonna be a mix you so what I'm saying? yeah definitely so i think rooftop solar has its own advantages you're self-sufficient um you are able to avoid those costs, those dependencies on the network, on other companies. Um, you're able to control your costs. So mm. the biggest benefit 
one of the biggest benefits of solar and, and wind is that the cost is up largely up front. So you know what your costs are because you've already paid it. So if you put solar on your own roof, you you don't have to worry so much about costs going up because that cost has already been incurred. Um, and you're able to continue powering your house if there's um, a network outage or a freak storm. Um, so in an age of more and more powerful um, weather incidents, so we've been quite lucky here. Although I think we had a mini tornado over the weekend in Kulin. Um but in an age of superstorms and massive hurricanes, uh, the ability to have your own domestic um, source of electricity is quite valuable. Mm. Um, and that insulation from cost is also very valuable. Uh, so any roof that can accommodate solar, so basically in the Southern Hemisphere, you're on the North facing roof, you always want to be facing the equator. So North roof in Southern Hemisphere, South facing roof in the Northern. Um, or east-west, so you get morning and evening sun. Um, any roof that can accommodate solar will probably get it, I would imagine. Um, but there are cost benefits of, of scale. So the cost per watt of a home system is on the order of a dollar, dollar ten. The cost per watt of a of a solar farm is sometimes as little as half that. Yeah, because you're in a big field, you're not climbing onto a roof and installing ten panels. You're in a field installing ten thousand, and it's just easier. You get out there and you sort of get it done quite quick and in a massive scale. Um, and of course, there are businesses that are in skyscrapers and um, or heavy industry that don't have enough roof space, and they're they're going to need more than they can provide for themselves. Mm. And then we've got issues at the moment of let's say apartment dwellers who can't put solar on their roofs. Um, so it'll be a mix of both. Yeah, we are seeing a lot more high rise apartment blocks going up here. Right? right. Yeah. And you know, you can always put a panel on your patio and charge a battery, but it's not going to do very much. Um, so it'll be a mix, I think. Um, and it could be, it could get to the point where rooftop solar gets um, pushed to the side because it's just so much more expensive than, um, utility scale. Hmm. But I think there is a demand. Again, that's going to be a big scale of investment, isn't it? It is. It is. And the other thing about solar is that, um, you know, if you're all in the same area, then it's usually sunny at the same time. So you need that geographically dispersed renewables to make renewables really make sense. So hmm. say, for instance, if you had a bunch of, we'll talk about the East Coast because it's already interconnected. If you had a bunch of solar up in Brisbane and a storm down in Melbourne, there's nothing that is going to prevent that solar power from flowing south yeah. to Melbourne. Um, likewise, if you were to, say, put a high-voltage direct current link between the east and the west coast of Australia, you could have sunset west Aussie sun powering the, the Sydney peak hour, 6 o'clock when it's cloudy there or, or yeah. nighttime. Um, so getting that disbursement of renewables to capture different weather patterns is mm. really valuable. Given the size of the continent, but even in Europe, so in Europe there was this um, what was it called Africa Africa Link or I forget the name of it, but basically the idea was to put a bunch of solar farms in northern Africa and HVDC links up to northern Europe to power um, the continent, which didn't really work out for a number of reasons. Yeah. Um, but yeah, dispersing your renewables and capturing different weather patterns is mm. quite valuable. You know that's what is nice about wind. I was going to say, you mentioned wind. How does that work? 
Well, so, you know, it's funny is like... You, Other you, than a windmill. You've got a lot of, uh, you know, wannabe weathermen who, who like to point out the fact that it's not always windy uh, during the day and that it's not, you know, sunny at night. And it's it's like, thanks. Knew that. <laughs> yeah, thanks. For, thanks. But if you, if you combine the two, it's often windy at night and it's often sunny during the day. And if you have both, then yeah. you're getting so to the point... summer when we've got... Yeah, sun and sun uh, and wind, right? Sure, breeze. Exactly, but that wind often continues through the night here. Yeah, um, and in those periods where it's neither sunny nor windy, you need a, a third solution. Whether that's a large amount of storage that's been um, mm. saved up in the sunny and windy periods, or something like biogas, um, which is methane produced from uh, animal uh, manure or other natural products. Yeah. Um, you can fill those gaps in with other renewable sources. Here in, in Fremantle, we've got um, Carnegie Wave Energy, who's pursuing wave um, power off the coast of uh, Garden Island, which yeah. is another option, but it's you know much more complex. Um, and so you you can. There's plenty of studies out there that say you can do 100% renewables. It's not easy. I don't think anyone said it was going to be easy. And it's not like it has to go from today's 90% fossil fuel and 10% renewable to tomorrow being 100% renewable. It's a transition. Yeah. Um, but the, the question is, how long does that transition take and how do you actually do it? Mm. And right now it's basically happening, you know, ad hoc and, and however is being um, able to, to happen because there's no real firm policy and, yeah. and stable support saying, this is our plan. This is how we're going to do it. But it's interesting to listen to what you have to say in terms of uh, the technology starting to come down. Yeah. Um, there's that. You can potentially see uh, your return on investment in two to three years, if not sooner. Yeah. So, you know, you look at it on a longer term basis and go, well, hang on a minute. After that, I've got the best part of you know, 17, 18 years worth of free energy. Yep. As long as I keep my system, you know, well maintained. Yep. That coupled with what you were saying about unconventional oil becoming more expensive to find, and if there is that start, gently gentle tipping point towards um, renewable energy, then that creates some certainty about should I invest another fifty billion dollars in mm. creating a big facility, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera, then it may well be that rather than sitting around waiting for a government policy, just the market is. Does move, it itself. People move with yeah. the feet. And I think that's what's happened. And, you know, it's, it's been quite clear that uh, climate policy and environmental policy is not enough to, to get the wheels of change moving. You know, all this stuff that's happening. I don't know if you followed it in the last couple of days up in the North, North Pole being warmer than in Europe. You know, they're supposed to be in the depth of winter right now and they went above freezing yesterday. Um, so it may well be too late, even with that type of stuff happening. No one seems to actually care or believe it's happening mm. or believe that they can do anything about it. Um, and the only thing that seems to drive any sort of change is a monetary difference. And thankfully, uh, that's actually happened and it's accelerating and that gap is widening. The tipping point, in my opinion, has already been crossed. It's already cheaper. Um, so if you're an investor looking at spending $50 billion on a plant that's got to run for 25 years to pay itself off, kind of got to wonder why you wouldn't put that 50 billion in a plant that'll pay itself off in five years. Yeah. 
and and what that comes down to is the fact that unfortunately for the conventional companies they have much more than 50 billion invested in the infrastructure and the assets oh, yeah. and if that change were to happen overnight you know it would be catastrophic it would be a truffle lights game ender mm. um, and the lights would probably go out here too because the, there simply isn't enough renewables yeah. ready to go so yeah it would be nice for that transition to happen smoothly but i think there are going to be some bodies on the on the road to renewables, that's for sure. <laughs> bodies on the road to renewables. And there already are bodies on the road to renewables. You know, there's been plenty of, of um, people who have seen the logic and what I'm saying and have gotten into renewables and got in too soon, got in in the wrong technology, got in the wrong market. And yeah. it's not an easy game and they've, they've failed. So it, I don't think there's any clear winners. I don't think you could point to any company that's out there right now and say, I'm 100% sure that they'll be around in five years. What about Elon Musk and his? Tether? I mean, you know, that that company is certainly um, responsible for the a lot of the acceleration that's happened. Um, it's highly leveraged, not necessarily profitable, um, and not necessarily um, going to make it. Uh, it would be a, a catastrophe, I think, for the industry if they did fail. I don't think they will, um, but I also wouldn't, you know bet that they'll be around in 10 years. But what they have done is basically very smartly set the price point at, at these price parity points. So this power wall is not accidentally priced at such a point that it's now cheaper than grid power. It was as if he went in and said, at what cost do we need storage to be for it to make sense? And they came down to, we need it to be $500 a kilowatt hour. Yeah. Can we produce it for that much? Not profitably. How much do we lose? Not too much. All right, let's just do it. They rolled it out. They set the price point. The mm. whole market then had to follow. Again, it's a technology cost curve. They were able to get their game together and they came on board. LG caught up. The Chinese companies caught up. And all of a sudden, that's the new reality. Boom. Okay. Energy storage complete. What about electric vehicles? All right, what do we need it to be? It needs to be safer. It needs to be faster. It needs to be better. And what price? Okay, we mm. need to get it to these points. Boom, done. Then all this stuff about range came out. Electric vehicles will never be able to go a thousand Ks. Electric vehicles will never be able to work for semi trucks. What does he do? He announces the Roadster can go a thousand Ks. We can do a semi truck. Okay, has he actually done it? Not yet, but everything he said he's done, he's done. It's just been a bit slower, but he's come out and he's nailed those exact tipping points and yes. those exact crossover points and basically told the market, this is what we're doing. If you want to compete with us, you have to do that or better. And, mm. you know, the free market has responded and caught up to him. So that's what's been the biggest benefit of Tesla is, is they've not only had the vision of saying we need to get there, but they've set that price and they've gone for it and they've delivered on it. So, yeah, without, without Tesla, I think we'd be five years behind right now. Right. Yeah. It's impressive when you break it down like that. Yeah, it's quite it's quite interesting. You don't quite get that. You don't quite get that when you you know you see stuff in the newspaper and TV, etc. Yeah, so you sort of get in there and you you kind of work the numbers back out, and you're like, so he's got in the newest uh, you know video or release of the semi truck where the Roadster came out, and he set this seven cent price limit. He said all Tesla cars will be able to recharge at our uh, superchargers at seven cents a kilowatt hour. So you go and work out at seven cents a kilowatt hour. What does that mean 
on a price per kilometer basis. And it means about 1.5 cents per kilometer, which is super, super cheap. And you go, how does he get to 7 cents per kilometer? What do you need storage to be at? You need storage to be at about $150 a kilowatt hour capital cost. And you need solar about a dollar per watt. And you work it out. And that's actually what the market is is pushing towards. And that's what is going to really uh, make that reality happen. So he's basically said, you can refill at this price point that will put mm. fossil fuel powered cars in the grave. And then what you do is you go and look at, okay, if I'm a gas station company, at what price do I need to sell my fuel to be able to let my motorist drive at two cents, 1.5 cents per kilometer? And that answer is about 25 cents a liter, which is basically impossible. So to get fuel at 25 cents a liter. Some dollar cheaper than current. <laughs> a dollar, yeah. With not too, That was what it was when I started driving in New Mexico 15 so odd years ago. Um, so to get it at that price, oil needs to be oil itself at $30 a barrel. No, ta The tax already is 40 cents, so couldn't even do it. The tax would have to go away. Yeah. Um, and no crack spread, which is you're not going to go through the effort of refining crude for no value. So it's basically not possible. You're going to be doing $20 a barrel, $20 a barrel. The vast majority of fields throughout the world cost more than 20 bucks to produce one barrel. So mm -hmm. that's just a matter of time then. Yeah. So at what, at what time does storage get to $150 a kilowatt hour and solar at a dollar? So solar is already a dollar. It's actually cheaper in Australia because mm -hmm. of the incentives. Bloomberg puts it at, 2025. So 2025, seven years from now, solar and storage is going to be cheap enough to run a car at a point that uh, internal combustion can't compete. Right. Exciting. Plus the fact that you can easily automate an electric vehicle because it's basically just a smart big iPhone running down the road and you can easily um, share those. You don't actually need a car. People don't maybe really want a car taking up so much space. Yeah, okay, I want a 4 by 4 to go camping. Well, do you actually want to own that or do you just want to rent it for two weeks? If you could rent it for two weeks cheaper than your registration for the whole year, why wouldn't you just do that? Mm. Don't have to maintain it. Don't have to babysit it. Don't have to clean it. Don't have to change your oil. So I think that whole concept around car ownership, while there is certainly some freedom through it and, and some people will probably continue owning cars for the vast majority of people, particularly those living in urban areas, there's, it's a relief not to own a car. Yeah. So there'll be businesses jumping up with plates of cars that you can rent in and out of. Yeah. I mean, Hertz will then just rent you a SUV to go electric SUV. That'll probably drive itself or, you know, you'll take your Uber. will come and pick you up only instead of your Uber driver driving his own car, it'll be a, fleet owned vehicle driving itself and 45% of the Uber cost is a driver that's out the window. Now your Uber minimum cost is $4 instead of seven. Then the next 20% is the cost of fuel and maintenance. Take that out. Now you're talking $3. Okay. So now you're running at three bucks as opposed to seven. So now Uber is 60% cheaper. Just take that everywhere. Mm. That's so, pretty cool. Why not? Yeah. Yeah. So you start getting these compounding things happening. And you, if you're at an oil company, I mean, to me, you'd be sitting there wondering, like, well, 
how do we compete? Like what, you know, we're not technically superior anymore. It's not getting any cheaper. It's not getting any better. We've reached the thermodynamic yeah. limits of our engine. Yeah. We're not exactly loved. We're not exactly loved. Um, our business isn't exactly easy. It's very dangerous. It's got tons of risk, mm. um, you know, geopolitical risk, security risk, you name it, uh, volatility risk. And we're not actually that profitable. Most of the oil companies really haven't been making profit in the last 10 years. And that's with guaranteed demand. So if you take that guaranteed demand out, it's you got to be thinking, do I change now or do I just mm. yeah. take my golden parachute and jump out of the plane and see it later? Yes. Do we, <laughs> yeah, I mean, yeah. Do we get to the point where, um, yeah, I'm thinking that through now, you know, you got the large grid of cars, et cetera. Yeah, you, you pretty much covered off. And what's interesting about so what's interesting what's interesting about the electric vehicle so the only thing we haven't touched on is industrial heat which is a challenge um, yeah so we can that's not that interesting or sexy so we'll just push that to the side <laughs> okay uh, it can be done with concentrating solar it can be done with biogas it can be done with electricity um, but there's going to be a lot of natural gas that's not getting burned in power stations which might be the good use for that yeah. But what's interesting about electric vehicles is that not only do you then solve a big transport problem, you then also solve the storage problem because instead of having to buy a home storage power wall to bolt on your garage wall, mm. you've now got the equivalent of eight power walls sitting under the hood of your car, which can be charged with your solar system and can also provide it back into your house. Yes. So then you get that buffer between your solar and the network okay. yeah. times eight included with the cost of your car mm. and you're now having mass amounts of storage rolled out throughout the network, which can help balance everything mm. and take away those peaks that exist. So, so as I, as I sit and listen to you, I'm, I'm, I'm seeing in my head, you know, um, hundred, 150 kilometers past, let's say Geraldton, you go and buy a nice piece of land, you go and stick a load of arrays on, you have a load of batteries and then you charge up people like a petrol station yeah. on the way to and from heading up to Carnarvon, Darwin, yeah. et cetera, et cetera. And um, yeah, is that what the new service station is going to look like? I think so. Um, yeah. I mean, long distance transport is an issue. So that recharge time comes down to the peak power that the grid can mm. provide. How does it normally, currently, how long does it take to recharge a Tesla car? So if you've got a supercharger, which is basically really high power, so that we're talking like 100 kilowatts or so, mm. um, between 10 and 20 minutes. So close to what it takes to refuel your car by the time you fill up the tank, yeah. go in, pay for it. You know, go to the toilet. Go into a fuel. Exactly. It's not... I mean, you know, a fuel stop less than 10 minutes is not exactly, uh, you know, a regular occurrence, particularly in Australia that doesn't even have pay at the pump. Yeah. Um, if you have one in your garage running off 240 volt, you know, it'll take six to eight hours. It depends on how much you've driven as well. Mm. You know, the average commute in Australia is 30 kilometers round trip per day. That would be easily done by a solar system alone mm. most days of the year. Um and there are those seasonal changes where it's two months of very little sun and that's where you need the wind to be kicking in or you mm. need something else. And, and so getting over those seasonal changes is, is a challenge. It's not all worked out, but you know, the core foundational blocks are there and overcoming some of those challenges is just a matter of geolocation, you know? Yeah. It's bloody 
cloudy in Margaret River in June, but it's pretty damn nice in Broome. Yes. So, okay, put a solar facility up there then, you know. Shipping power around the country is not a new thing, mm. so it can be done. It, it will take investment. Yeah. Yeah. And then I suppose the other last bastion that pops up to mind is, is planes and boats. Well, so we had the, the solar impulse plane. So that was the plane that flew around the world only mm. on solar. Of course, that took them two months and a few stops and, you know, quite a lot of uh, mm. very slow, but they showed that it's possible. Yeah. Um, Siemens is working on electric planes. Um, Virgin is pursuing biodiesel power or bioaviation fuel powered planes. I think they just flew their first biofueled plane flight a couple of months ago. Um, so I think planes are coming. It, they might even just get passed by drones. You know, most of the drones you see, almost all of them are electric. Um, so it could quite well be that we're just flying drones everywhere. Uh, boats, you know, they've got electric boats now in China and Norway. Uh, they've got gas powered boats. So the, the EU has passed regulations for the domestic ports that basically prevent the use of heavy fuel oil. So once you've taken the gasoline out and the diesel and you're left with the sludge at the bottom, mm. they just chuck that in a boat and torch it. And that's how they power the boats. It's nice and dirty, you know, out in the open oceans. The only thing that has to worry about that is the fish. Who cares about the fish? And um, so now they're replacing that with with natural gas. They can fly natural right. gas-powered boats. They're getting electric boats. You know, maybe even uh, someone has told me that there used to be these things that were wind-powered boats. All right. Yes. <laughs> Sailboats, they called them. Right. This is a little joke for, the, for our listeners. Yeah. <laughs> Um, but yeah, I mean, you know, there's, there's solutions to all that. That's what's so nice about electricity is you can apply it to so many different technologies that mm. it's not a, um, it's not a one, one use case. It's multiple use cases. Yeah. Yeah. Super. So if I was a listener listening to this, um, and by no means am I making you like consultant, hang on your advice. What are the, what are the first steps I should be considering right now? Having a listen to that all of this. So if you own a home or business, I would go and you're in Australia, I'd go out and get quotes on solar systems immediately. Mm -hmm. That's the easiest. Well, before that, the, the smart thing to do is to figure out, you know, how much electricity you're using, um, and what's using it and cut down that unnecessary usage. That's not really the sexy thing. Um, so the easier thing to do is go out and buy solar panels. Yeah. So it's almost do your demand audit. Yeah. Cut your, cut your unnecessary demand down. Um, and you know, that's fairly easy to do, but a lot of times people don't want to bother with that. And you know, in all honesty, there's lots of stuff that does get wasted, but it oftentimes requires behavioral change that people maybe don't want to do. So yeah, I can save 20 bucks a year by un unplugging my beer fridge, but then where am I going to keep my beer cold at? So I'd rather just have that. So, okay, fine. You don't want to do that. Don't want to make the changes. That's fine. Put some panels on your roof. If you don't own a home or business or the buildings they're in, then obviously that option isn't necessarily available. You can chat with your landowner who may be open to the idea. There's certain power purchase agreements and other contractual arrangements that can be profitable for both of you. 
So there's new business models coming out where if you're renting a home, the homeowner puts solar panels on, sells you the power at 20% yeah. discount from grid power. Right. You save money. They so have a new... The home and energy package from the landlord. That's right. And in the um, EU now, you know, when you sell homes, you have to quantify how much it costs to run the home. Um, so having an efficient home becomes a more valuable asset. You're starting to see that in, in home resale stuff all the time where they list, you know, solar panels right up front. Um, unfortunately, you know, in Australia and around the world, electric vehicles basically aren't available right now, uh, at least in any sort of easy capacity to access. So you probably have to wait on that. You get an electric bike quite easily. Um, you know, I've got one and it's a lot more fun than I ever imagined it would be. Um, and yeah, you know, it's, it's sort of one of those things right now, the future is on the cusp. It's sort of, you can see it. If you actually go and read the reports and look into it, you, you can kind of, at least if you're sitting in my you know seat, you see where it's going, but what action you take right now, it's kind of a, a wait and see, or you put your money in the stock market and you back the companies you think are going to be successful. People that put their money in Tesla five years ago are certainly happy with the performance of that stock. Um, Google has their Waymo spinoff. So Google had their um, driverless cars in the US for the last two years. They've now spun that company off into their own uh, entity called Waymo. And they're now running um, autonomous vans, EVs in Arizona. Right. So it's coming really quick. It's one of those things people have been hearing about it for so long. They kind of think, oh, yeah, I've been, someone's mm -hmm. been telling me about driverless EVs for 20 years. And we have driverless trucks and mines and up north. Yeah, they're not electric. Um, no, well, still. some of them actually are. There are electric drivetrains and, and a diesel generator on them. Um, but yeah, autonomous mine site. Yeah. Um, the point being that it's there. It's there. Autonomous. The RAC had autonomous electric bus running in South Perth all last year, had no incidents. Um, I mean, when it comes down to it, the way we do it now is inefficient. Humans are not good drivers. They're not safe drivers. They're not sober drivers. They're tired drivers. Um, so if we want, you know, safer, better roads, the best thing we can do is get us out of the driver's seat. And isn't it logic? Isn't it, you know, we're, as much as we want to believe that we're really good drivers, uh, we're not. And, you know, I've lived in probably 10 different cities and every city I've lived in, they say, our drivers are the worst in the world. And it's like, well, you know, that's what they said in Houston. And that's what they said in Albuquerque. And yeah. that's what they say in Perth. And I got to say that they're all bad. Yeah. So yeah, the, the future is potentially better just as long as we don't screw it up in the present, which we may already have done. Indeed. Indeed. <laughs> I mentioned at the start, um, saying about the, the earth ship. Oh yeah. What's that? Okay. Uh, so earth ships are, self-defined by the creator, Michael Reynolds, as uh, radically sustainable homes. Radically. Radically. So if you Google Earthship, you'll see some funky looking um, homes that look like, you know, Luke Skywalker's aunt and uncle's place out in Tatooine. Um, but basically what they are is they're, they're homes that are self-sufficient in energy, waste, water, food. Um, so they basically are, are intelligently de designed passive solar homes, um, made out of recycled materials. So typically tires, um, with compacted dirt in them, and then a proper, uh, solar orientation to capture the sun, internal greenhouse to produce food, 
Um, and they're basically homes that, that don't have many or any operational costs. Um, yeah, so they come from northern New Mexico up in Taos and, you know, a bunch of hippies in the 70s went out and started building homes out of beer cans and then switched over to tires. And and uh, now they're starting to kind of go worldwide and, and they're basically self-sufficient homes. Yeah. You just need to buy the land. You do need quite a lot of land. So I think I believe it's like half an acre per earthship. So it involves a lot of space dedicated to rainwater tanks and compacted mm. dirt tires. Um, so it's not something you would put in the cities. But when I saw Michael Reynolds talk in, in October, he was saying they're looking at doing a multi-story one in Japan. Um, they're quite cool. Yeah, they're sort of low footprint, taking a waste product, all these used tires and turning them into a mm. um, building material. Awesome. Yeah. So um, when you consider the, the, the future of the you, the uh, energy industry and how does it actually leave you feeling as somebody who's interested in all of this? How does, how yeah. does it feel? Yeah. Um, I guess for me, it's, it's a bit frustrating at the moment because you sort of you see where it's going. You look at the physical realities of the current technologies um, and the fact that those have basically reached their limits and aren't exactly efficient or effective. Uh, maybe they are, but I sat in traffic today for about an hour <laughs> when it was quite clear that that didn't need to happen. But, you know, just the way we're doing things, this conventional way of doing things isn't that good. And there's much better ways of doing it. But we're sort of stuck in this paradigm quagmire where no one wants to admit that the way things are going right now is not good. Um, and the ones that have the power are are quite keen to hold on to it. Um, yeah, so I, you know, I've got faith that we'll pull out of it, but I don't know when or yeah. how. And I, people like Musk are, are really, you know, you got to say thank God for Elon Musk because if it wasn't for him and that type of investment and that type of character and, and making electric vehicles and solar sexy, then, you know, I think we'd all quite happily go down burning our fossil fuels like a bunch mm. of cavemen and running around in our Flintstone cars, you know, waiting around till the ice caps melt. And then such is life mm. as Benny C says. The- <laughs> Excellent. Excellent. So if anyone's out there and they wanted to talk to you more about the renewable energy and, and where they go, whether it's for the home, for a project, a business, how can they get hold of you? Send me an email. So I've got a, um, a startup I've just started called Tawa. And it's I just spell it. T-A-W-A. Yeah. Yeah. So you can send me an email at steve at tawa.com.au and I'll probably respond. <laughs> no, I will respond. Yeah. 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 Super. Well, Steve, thank you very much thank for you, coming man. today and, and explaining um, with, with such clarity something that's very confusing um at times very impenetrable um we all i think most of us deep down know that um we should be doing something else and yet it all seems to be quite confusing and yet we don't understand how things work at a global level and so i think what you've managed to do today is break it down into this super straightforward synopsis that anyone can get their heads around so now they understand where they are in terms of how they can now uh, more proactively go and 
consume their energy. I yeah. think what would be fun is if we started cons- considering where our energy came from, much like we're starting to do with our food in terms of do we want to buy something from West Australia, Australia, or yeah. asparagus from Mexico, maybe not, etc. You know, it'd be fun if we almost we sat there at the at the pumps and said, hey, where's the fuel come from? Yeah, Saudi Arabia. Not so happy with their policy at the moment. I'll buy it from somewhere else, please. Or if it, yeah. if the fuel the fuel came from your roof. Yes. Yeah. As fuel come from someone's roof. Yeah. Okay. That's cool. That's cool. I, I'm I'll down with that. that. Or I'll or if you've still got a you know diesel uh, truck, it comes from the fish and chips shop down the road. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. So you're a bit more of a considered buyer of yeah. your energy where you do. Yeah, I that, think a lot of that comes to the point that people just absolutely have no idea. Yeah. Yeah. And it's not exactly made clear, is it? No, no. For all sorts of reasons. For all sorts of reasons, you know. And, you know, the fact that there's, I probably use 10 different units today. Yes. The fact that the vast majority of those units are totally abstract and confusing for the vast majority of people does not make it easy. You know, the kilowatt hour is like really not the easiest thing to say, right? You know, it looks like a MySpace 15 year old wrote the unit <laughs> and um, whatever. Yeah, there we go. It's not easy. Indeed. So, Steve, thank you very much for your time yeah. and sharing your knowledge and expertise with us. I'm pretty sure the listeners will have got loads out of this. Cheers, mate. Thanks, Brent.